Let me throw out this morning a, a hypothetical question, church family, and the question would be this. What would happen, large scale, if the church conformed to the doctrines of culture? Yeah, there's some groans in there. What would happen? Likely it would look something like this. One, there would be doctrines in culture, ideas, ideologies that clearly contrasted with, with what we as the church held to be the biblical true faith. And somewhere in there, likely what would happen is you would have some pastors and some theologians who would, seeing the challenges of these cultural ideologies and seeing the tension and how culture now views the church and her, her faith as something outdated, superstitious, closed-minded, these pastors and theologians would begin to articulate and, and find ways where, well, may, maybe, maybe they're really not so different. Maybe we've just been too dogmatic on some things in the faith, and they would begin to espouse some different, new, fresh thoughts. Maybe doctrinally, maybe morally. And what would inevitably happen is these theologians living in the ivory towers of academia would begin to write these things and teach these things in the classroom. And then you would begin to produce pastors who would understand these things. And they would begin to write these things in the language of the common people and preach these things in the pulpit. And after so many decades, what you would end up with is a type of church that has pushed back and pushed away and let go of many of the historical defining marks of the faith that may look differently in different situations. You would find a church that would be less concerned about how something matches up to Scripture and God's Word and more concerned about the experience that you have religiously. And you would find a church in a weakened state to address any of the problematic themes in society. And if, as I'm saying all this, you're running through your mind going, wow, pastor's being sneaky in describing today's world. I'm actually not describing today's world. I'm actually describing to you what started in the mid-1800s in a country far away where the pastors and theologians tried to, in their eyes, rescue the Christian faith from irrelevance. And they began to tweak things and come up with new things and say, well, it really doesn't matter if you question this. That's not what's important. This is what's important. And after eight decades, here's what those pastors and theologians who believed they were trying to keep the faith relevant for the culture, here's where it left them. It left them with a church that had been so gutted of the gospel that it refused to stand up in any way to the wickedness of anti-Semitism and nationalism and cheered in the streets as Adolf Hitler took power. What I've described to you is what took place in the German church under Protestant liberalism, which one described as this, that they espoused a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. You see, what happened is a warning. There is a danger when all of a sudden the faith comes under assault from within. It's a real danger. It's a danger we see today, and it's a danger that wasn't new to today. It's not new to 
the 1800s and 20th century of Germany. It's a danger that goes all the way back to the early church. And because of that, I invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. Uh, if you want to say, Pastor, how do I get there? Take your Bible, open it to the back. You'll be in Revelation. Find the beginning of Revelation and flip the page. There's Jude. It'll take up about one page in your Bible, maybe two. It takes up two in mine. Page numbers are on the screen, but the small little book of Jude, which some have said is the most neglected New Testament epistle of the last 200 years, because Jude calls this danger out clearly. Listen what it says, church family. Jude verse 1. By the way, it's just Jude verse 1 because there's, no, there's only one chapter. So don't go, well, what chapter? There's, no, there's only one chapter. Jude 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now let's stop there for a second because anytime we come to a new place in Scripture, there's some basic questions we should always ask, starting with, who did God use to write this letter? Well, let's see what we find out. It says Jude. Jude would be a shortened version of the Greek name Judas, which would be the Greek version of the Hebrew name Judah. So all we know is this person was named uh, in Hebrew Judah and Greek Judas, and it's no surprise following the death of Christ that he wouldn't probably want to go by Judas anymore and would just shorten it to Jude. And he says this, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, literally a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ, a statement of honor and respect. You say honor and respect, yes, because in the ancient world, if you were one of the emperor's slaves, though you had no standing, it was expected that everybody in the empire treats you with honor and respect because you were an official representative of the emperor. When he says here, I am a, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ, it's not only a statement of humility, it is a statement of honor. I belong to Jesus. Jude, one who belongs to Jesus, it is also a statement of humility. Jude, one who belongs to Jesus, but who belongs to Jesus as his servant, who recognizes that Jesus is king, a statement of humility. He also says this, a brother of James. Now, brother of James, who would James be? Well, I'm going to spare you the long, the long process. If you want questions, you can feel free to ask me later. But there's only one James in the New Testament era who you could simply say, hey, I'm related to James. And everyone would go, oh, okay. And that would be the James the Just, James the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the same James whose letter we just finished last week. The same James who is a biological half-brother of Jesus Christ, which means this Jude is a biological half-brother of Jesus Christ, whose name Judas, long form, is mentioned in Matthew chapter 13 as one of the brothers of Jesus, which makes his statement of humility all the more. When once as a brother he was embarrassed and refused to acknowledge Christ because he thought he was crazy, now he won't call Christ a, his brother and, and use it for good, not not because he's embarrassed, but because his, the one whom he knew as brother growing up as a child is the one he now knows as Savior and Lord. Meaning there is none so special, there is no one so distinct that they do not have to humble themselves before the king. So Jude, this is Jude, the biological half-brother of Christ. Now, the other questions we ask, when is he writing? Well, you read through the whole letter. We don't totally know when exactly he, he wrote the letter. It's very likely sometime in the mid-60s of the first century. Well, who's he's writing to? Well, we'll find that out as we read through the letter, and 
He doesn't tell us where the church is located, but what we understand and see throughout the letter is he's writing to a group of believers that he knows very well. He knows very well. He knows what they're walking through. But the other question we ask is, why is he writing? Now, this is critical. Look with me at verse 3. Why is Jude writing? Beloved. That's how we know he's writing believers. Beloved, ones who are special objects and fellow uh, objects of love. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Here's what he says. He says, beloved, my, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, ones who are beloved of God. He said, here's, here's why I'm writing. He said, I I really wanted, I had this eager, zealous, excited longing to write to you a letter all about the greatness of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. All about the greatness of his grace, his mercy, the the wonders of his love, the, the fact that we have been forgiven of our sin and reconciled to Christ. I wanted to write, I wanted to write about this to you. But then he says, but I felt the necessity, which is a very interesting word, which literally means I felt a constraint and a pressure that is so strong, I had no other option but to throw out that original desire and immediately write to you. Your situation that you are facing is so dire and so dangerous that I have have had to drop everything I'm doing and write to you appealing to exhort you, to call you, to come alongside that you contend earnestly. And that's the command that you yourselves live a life where you are contending, where you are, the word means a strenuous labor. In fact, it's, it's the root or the root of the word is where we get the English word agony. He says, I'm, I am I am, I am writing to you. I am, the situation you face is so dire. I am calling you to come alongside me and to engage in the hard, the challenging, the strenuous, the, an effort that's going to demand exertion, to contend earnestly for what? He says, for the faith that has been handed down once for all. He says, the faith. I want you to notice he says, the faith. He doesn't say, I want you to contend earnestly for your faith. He doesn't say, I want you to contend earnestly for my faith. There's no object, there's no uh, subjectivity here. He says, I want you to contend earnestly, earnestly for the faith, the, the one true faith. It is specific. It's not your thoughts. It's not my thoughts. It's not the world's thoughts. The one true faith. And he gives two modifiers, which has been handed down, meaning it has been authoritatively delivered. It's not something that we came up with and made up ourselves, but God himself has handed down the one true faith. He's communicated the one true faith through his word, which according to 2 Peter, there's no word of scripture that came about from the result of man's ingenious thinking, but every single word of scripture came about by the direct movement and power of the Holy Spirit upon the biblical author. We know from Paul, it says all Scripture, every ounce of it is God-breathed, and therefore it's true, it's inerrant, it's without error, it was delivered one for all. And what does all Scripture testify to? He says once for all. All Scripture points to Jesus Christ, who according to Hebrews 1 is the final 
revelation of God to man. There's no more to come, which means every other world faith that has attempted to come and say, we believe in Jesus too, but here's where we've got new revelation. That'd be Islam, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism. They're wrong. They're false. Why? Because God has handed down once for all, once for all, once for all time, for all people in all places, nothing new, the one true faith that is in Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, once for all the faith. He says, I'm asking you that you, I'm calling you to contend for it. Why? Look at what he says, verse 4. For certain persons, specific people have crept in unnoticed. He says they're not just talking in generalities now. There are specific people, and that word for crept in unnoticed, it means that they have, they have come in stealthily. They're among you and you don't know it. Or you're choosing not to realize it. These infiltrators are like sleeper cell agents of the enemy who look and seem in some ways like they belong but who do not for those have crept in unnoticed. And he says these were long ago beforehand marked out for condemnation. They're ungodly people. They don't care about the Lord. They turn the grace of our God instead of a means of of deliverance into a means of licentiousness that is a living for pleasure with no abandon, and they deny the authority of our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says, this is why I'm writing you, church. Your situation is so dire because you have people who have come in among you who, who look like you, who act like you, who, who try to convey that they think like you, but in reality, the, the crux of their life, what their life proclaims, the truth they are teaching, it is set against God, it is driven by their own pleasure, and there is no recognition of Jesus as Lord in their life. But they're amongst you, and you're unaware. So this is why I'm writing. Now, church family, here's the thing. We're going to come back next week and really unpack verses 3 and 4 in far more detail like we need to. But I need us to see why he's writing, because it's interesting what Jude does. We've skipped some words. Jude doesn't just launch in and go, hey, church, your situation's so dire. This is what's going on. No, instead, he says a few very specific things to lay a foundation, to remind us of a foundation that if we don't remember and are not confidently standing on, we won't contend earnestly for the faith. So look back at verse 1 with me and look what he says. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in Christ, or beloved in God the Father, and kept by and for Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. He says, do you know whose you are and therefore who you are? He said, to those who are the called, to those who have been summoned by name, who have been chosen, who have been selected to the called. What do we mean by the called? Well, we know Jesus in his own words, John chapter 4, says no one comes to Christ unless the Father first draws him. We know Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. How does the Father draw a lost man or woman to, to Christ? Well, it starts with the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin. Before any one of us in this room came to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit was working on our heart, convicting our heart that we were in fact guilty of being a sinner. 
And because we're sinners, we are outside of a right relationship with God, the Holy Spirit's conviction. Now, if the Father was working on our hearts even as lost people, if the Holy Spirit was convicting you, you know what this means? The moment that you, in faith, looked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm trusting who you are and what you've done to save me, and Jesus saved you, it means you weren't saved by accident. You didn't slip into the family of God, brother or sister. Salvation with God is not like putting in your order at the grocery store where you get your groceries and sometimes you get somebody else's groceries that slipped in there. If you are in Christ, you didn't slip in unnoticed to God because you're just not really that important, you know. God took a bunch of these people over here and saved them and you just happened. No. God saved you. I've got a former student of mine who, uh, it's been fun to watch, uh, I had him all throughout junior high, he is, he is about to be selected as one of the top 10 picks in the NFL draft next month. And you better believe when that, whatever team selects him, it won't be by mistake. They're selecting him. They're going after him. They're not going to get up there and say something, they're going to call his name on that podium. What does it mean to be called church family? It means God sought you intentionally, personally. He sought you and He called you out of the kingdom of darkness, meaning that to be one who is called, we sever any and all ties with our past in the world. He, he called us to Himself in the kingdom of light. We are His chosen possession, which means we are called to Him. We are loyal to Him. We honor who he is, how he is, as he says he is. We are, in the words of Peter, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. We're called. And being called, that only means we're his. It means we have a destiny for all things. He works all things together for the good of those who are the called according to his purpose. And we can get locked, different people, what does it mean called? Are you saying something predestination or not? I'm not saying anything about it. I'm saying here's the fact, church family, brother or sister. If you're in Christ, it's because God sought you and drew you and called you by name. And you're not a mistake being in Christ. Well, what else does it mean? Whose are we? We're Christ's, his chosen possession. But what does it mean about who we are? Well, look, he says, to those who are the called, and then he gives two Two participles to describe what does it mean to be called. He says, beloved, ones who are beloved. What does it mean to be loved, to be agape? It means to be loved with the unconditional goodness of God, where he gives sacrificially and eternally of himself for the good of the one he loves. Being loved by God means he unconditionally values us as human beings. Why? Because we're made in His image. In fact, to go this, listen, all of creation, no one is more valuable than God. God is, at, God is the top. God is, it's all about God. But inside of everything created, seen and unseen, do you know what the single most valuable being in all of creation is? You and me. There is an unconditional value that He's placed on us, and, and His love not only values us out, out, out of His goodness, but it causes Him to give sacrificially. In fact, his love, according to Scripture, is most clearly seen in what? In Jesus going to the cross, 
becoming our sin, the very rebellion that we have against Him, which separates us eternally, drinking all of hell on that cross that we rightfully deserve. Why? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only unique Son to be the propitiation for our sin. We are loved. His love is perfectly demonstrated on the cross. Scarcely will a righteous man die for, or one die for a righteous man, how much more for a rebellious traitor. Yet the Lord died for us all. We are loved. We are, it says, kept. We're loved by God the Father. We're kept by and for Jesus Christ. That word to kept means to protect, to preserve in this world of such trickery and lies and deceit of so many slippery slopes that could take us down, we are not following Christ on our own. God didn't call you to keep yourself in the faith. No, it says here that you are kept in the faith by Jesus Christ Himself. He is preserving you. He is protecting. He, he protects us through the conviction of sin. He protects us by bringing discipline in our life when, and correction when we, when we fall into sin. He, he protects and keeps those who are His, which, which means this, and time doesn't give us to go there all today, but it means this. If a person has truly been saved by the grace of God, There's no possible way they can lose it because to lose it would mean Jesus for a split second loses something precious to him. Jesus is powerful. No one can take something from his hand. He says, the Father has given them me. No one shall snatch them from my hand. We are kept. So what does this mean, church family? What does this mean with what we do? It means we have to embrace the reality of who we belong to and therefore who we are. We have to embrace it. It means we live embracing the reality that we are the called ones of God, unconditionally valued and sacrificially loved by God the Father, protected and preserved for Jesus Christ. Our lives are not our own. If we're called to God, we don't get to debate with God about His plans and will. We were bought with a price. We don't get to haggle with God over His Word. We do not get to decide what is sin or what is holy. We don't get to determine things based on our feelings, our struggles, and culture's desires. No, we follow Him for who He is, how He is objectively, based on what He has perfectly said about Himself in His Word. means our lives are not our own. It means we're loved fully. Church family, you do not need the affirmation, acceptance, and validation of this world to give you value and worth. Whether you are 99, whether you are 9, whether you are 15, if you are in Christ, you are so valued and so loved that you have all you need for your identity. It. If we're in Christ, our identity is Christ whom loves us. We don't need the world's acceptance, the world's applause, the world's validations. And here's what this is going to mean practically, church family. If you and I are going to embrace whose we are and who we are, we're going to have to take intentional effort as believers to meditate, to remember how He loves us to worship Him and praise Him for how He loves us on the days when we feel it and especially on the days when we don't. 
And there is an interesting connection all throughout Scripture. There is an interesting connection. Our ability to live in the fullness of God. Did you catch that from the Scripture I read earlier at the welcome? He prays that they would be able to comprehend what is the love of God so that they would be filled with His fullness. If you want to live in the fullness of God, you must comprehend, you must meditate on, you must live and dwell in and rejoice in the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. And if we back out, if we water down His love, if we grow uncomfortable with us, if we just get distracted or we want other people's loves, you want to know why when we do that you don't feel the fullness of God in your life? because you're ignoring the very means by which we can walk in the fullness of God. If we don't understand his love, it'll be challenged to love him back because we love, why? Because he first loved us. It's imperative that we know we're loved. It's vital we know we're kept. If we don't know that it is God actively working in our lives to protect us, to preserve us, to guard us, to present us holy and blameless before Jesus Christ, if we don't know that, then you, you will go one of two ways. You will either ignore his work of protection, and that's a dangerous path of, of correction and discipline to go down, or you will become consumed by anxiety and fear in this world. God did not call you to walk with him in a way that this world dislikes and then leave us all on our own to do it he called us to follow Him, and He's the one who keeps and preserves us. We're not on our own. There should be a confidence how we walk. There should be a confidence for how we pray for our loved ones. We are valuable to Him. Whose are we? We are God's called. Who are we? We are the ones who are beloved and kept. But He didn't just tell us whose we are and who we are. He, tells us what's been given. Look at verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now cue in there. He says, be multiplied, literally uh, a verb that expresses a wish. I want these things to grow and to increase amongst you. Well, if something's going to grow or increase amongst us, it means that we already have it. You can't increase something you don't already have. So it means God has given us mercy, God has given us peace, God has given us love. And Jude writes and he says, the aim of my writing, I want you to remember this, this foundation. I want you to remember whose you are. I want you to remember who you are. And in that, I want you to remember what God has given you. He's given you mercy, which is that deep-seated compassion of God that looks out on one who is in distress, who is in misery, and is so moved with, to action that he acts as one in power, as one who is strong to, to rescue and deliver the one who is weak and without power. It's his mercy that drives our salvation according to Ephesians 2, 4. And it's his mercy, brother and sister, that doesn't just save us, but according to the prophet Jeremiah, undergoing far worse trials than most of us have ever seen. And the book of Lamentation says, and the Lord's mercies every morning are new. You and I have mercy from God. And for mercy to be multiplied amongst us means for us to continue to experience that mercy in a greater way and for us to show mercy to each other and this world in the same way. He says, peace. What is peace? Peace is 
not the absence of conflict or the absence of tension or the absence of hardship. Peace here is built on the Old Testament term shalom, which is the idea of wholeness, harmony. It's a relational term. It speaks of being in harmony with God, not in a relationship of hostility, but one of peace with God, of of wholeness. We have peace with God, according to Romans 5, because of the salvation we find in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Peace not only is peace with God, but, but peace with God means peace and harmony with myself, a restoration to how I relate to my own person. Not only that, but then it's supposed to be peace that marks the way that we live and move and breathe as much as it depends upon us with each other in the family of God. And then as best we can in the world with those who are in rebellion to God. It says peace being multiplied. I want you to know and experience this peace, this wholeness, this harmony with God. I want you to grow and experience it uh, in the way that you relate to yourself, no longer walking in, in the brokenness and insecurities of your past, but walking in the peace of God, which the Holy Spirit produces, which God will use to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And if it's going to be multiplied, that we would, we would walk in peace with one another, which should happen in the, in the church of God. says love. We've already seen what it means to be love. For love to be multiplied means we continue to experience this love and give this very love to others. Jude writes and says, I want these things to be multiplied and make no mistake, church family, when he calls us to contend for the one true faith, he calls us to contend for it because where the true faith is not preached, where the true faith is watered down, it does not matter how good that will feel to those who want affirmation of their sin and false beliefs. It does not matter the absence of conflict that it will look like going on in that church where truth is watered down. There will not be the mercy, peace, and love of God multiplying. No, instead, mercy will cave to anger or a permissiveness. Peace will give way to selfish ambition or coerced uniformity. Love will be replaced by manipulation and hollow feel-goods. If those things are going to be multiplied, they will only be multiplied because the true faith, the true faith that's about the real Jesus who is alive, who is active, who is on the move, only He can multiply those things and only those things will be multiplied when we walk in His path, not our own twisting of His path. And catch this church family because this is going to be a letter that causes us to have to walk through and bring up and call out some very specific controversial things. But notice what Jude's desire. Jude's desire is not that the church would be marked by chaos and division. It's not that the church would be marked by anger and hostility. It's not that the church would run around and and look like a bunch of angry people. He says, what I want for you, well, the reason it is so dire that I am writing to you is I want you as a church to know and marked by an experience in an abounding and abounding way, the mercy of God, the peace of God, the love of God. So he says, do you know whose you are, who you are? 
and what he's given you. Because if you don't know whose you are and who you are, you won't have a clue what you're fighting for and why it matters. There is in, um, I love when uh, kids' movies, any movie really, but when a kid's movie picks up, the whole movie's not necessarily true, but when a kid's movie picks up on a nugget of truth and just puts it out there in an impactful way. And there's a poignant scene, and I'm assuming most have seen this movie either as a kid parent or grandparent, and so if not, well then we're just going to have a horrible uh, illustration here, and that's all right. But there is a poignant scene in the movie Lion King. And if you know the story, Simba, King's son, in a moment of sorrow and tragedy, he is told a lie that he believes wholeheartedly. And he takes off and runs away from the kingdom. He ends up in a place in a culture of Hakuna Matana. No worries, no problems. Just go about your way, enjoy life, feel good, it's great. He gets news as he grows up that back at his home, the land has been ravaged, the people are suffering, the lie has spread and brought destruction and havoc. And he finds himself unmoved. No worries, no problems, it's not impacting me. And there's this poignant scene where he goes out in the middle of the night into the savannah. And all of a sudden, his dad shows up. And what does his dad say? He says, Simba, you've forgotten me. You've forgotten me. You've forgotten me. Instead, you're, you're here. You're not concerned about the kingdom. You're not concerned about what's right. You're just here doing your own thing. And then he makes this statement. He says, you've forgotten who you are. You are my son. Now go take your place. See, church family, here's the reality, the truth it picks up on. The reason Jude establishes this foundation are if you and I forget whose we are, we are God's sons and daughters by adoption. We are servants of the Most High. It's not about us. It's all about Him. Our lives are not our own. Whose are we? We are those called, chosen by, by the one true Almighty God. Can you fathom that? The God of the universe not only knows your name, He calls you by your name. Whose we are, who we are. We are ones who are loved perfectly, who are valued unconditionally, who are kept and preserved not just by Jesus, but for Him, for His glory, at His return. We've been given and filled with mercy, peace, and love from the Most High God. And if we forget whose we are, if we forget who we are, Rather than contending for the faith, we will fight over preferences, styles, preferred methods of ministry. We will settle for the lesser gifts of this world and its hollow promises. We will distract ourselves with a wasted and empty life. Meanwhile, the world around us suffers and dies.
And see, church family, as we come to the table today, we come to this table to remember whose we are. We are Jesus Christ. How do we get to be Jesus Christ if you've actually come to faith, personal faith in Jesus Christ? It's because Jesus Christ came and lived the life we failed to live. It's because Jesus Christ came, became our sin on the cross and died in our place. It's because Jesus Christ came and broke his body and shed his blood that the power and chains of sin would be broken, that we would be released and bought out from that bondage, bought at a price, the precious blood of Christ, that we would be brought in and adopted to the family of God, reconciled with God to sit at his table in his presence forever as sons and daughters. We come to the table today to remember who Jesus is and what he's done, and it's because of who he is and what he's done that allows us to belong to God and to be who we are, ones who are beloved and kept. Church family, if we don't remember whose we are and who we are, we will not contend earnestly for the one true faith. But if we remember whose we are and who we are, we will find the strength to stand firm and to contend for the true faith in the face of heated or persuasive opposition. If we remember whose we are and who we are, we will find the hope to stand firm and contend for the faith, even in the face of discouragement and despair. When we remember whose we are and who we are, we remember the simple truth, it is not about us, but Him and His glory, and He is King, and He is victor, and He is coming back. So church family, the question in front of us as we remember today is do we know we are His chosen ones, beloved and kept? filled with His mercy, peace, and love. And if we've forgotten, then today we need to remember. And if we remember, then today we need to set our hearts to earnestly contend for the faith. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to You. There is so much about just the simple greeting from Jude, Lord, that pierces my heart. Because there have been many days, Father, where I have succumbed to the fear of, of, of yes, I know you love me, but I, I've, I've got to, if, if, if I don't maintain everything flawless, I, I, then I'll, I'll fall away. Or this, Lord, fear in the face of you who loves and protects. Inversely, Lord, when there are times in life where I have basked in the greatness and magnitude of your love, there has been a fullness and empowering a richness to follow you. And for my brothers and sisters in this room, Jesus, may we really reckon today, have we forgotten whose we are? And in forgetting whose we are, have we forgotten who we are, what you've given? Lord, may we remember Because as we will see in the days to come, there are many people who have infiltrated and are trying to corrode and destroy the one true faith. And some in their eyes with good intentions. Holy Spirit, as you move through this room, may we respond in whatever way that may be. Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray.